This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. On April 15th, 2013, a horrible attack occurred near the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Two terrorists had planted two homemade pressure cooker bombs, which detonated and killed three people and injured hundreds more. One of the injured was Patrick Downs, who lost his leg in the bombing. Now in 2016, Downs again attended the Boston Marathon, but this time not as a spectator, but as a runner. After five hours and 56 minutes, he crossed the finish line of the Boston Marathon wearing a prosthesis and holding his hands above his head, and he became the first Boston bombing amputee to complete the entire marathon on foot. Now, when interviewed at the finish line, Down said, I ran with the city in my heart. Martin, Sean, Lindsay, Crystal, naming the people who died in the bombings and the aftermath. His wife, Jessica, who lost both legs in the explosion, joined him for an embrace just beyond the finish. Now, what would cause an amputee to run the Boston Marathon? Now, think about that for a second. How many of you would run 26 miles with your own able-bodied capability? This man with one leg and armed with a prosthesis ran those 26 miles and endured to the very end. He persevered to the end. Now, it's clear from his comments in the end why he did that. At that, when he took the names of those that had died from the Boston bombing, he revealed that he was motivated by a greater cause than his own, right? He was making a statement by his running that marathon. Now, this is a very motivational story, and we can applaud Patrick Downs for his strength and his courage. Now, as we turn to 2 Timothy, Paul is also facing a very long race. This one isn't literal, but figurative. He had suffered greatly for the gospel and was now facing the end of his life. And he's pleading with his own spiritual son, Timothy, to join this race. Would young Timothy faithfully take up the call to the race of gospel ministry? And how would he be able to persevere through all of its difficulties and suffering? This is what our text this morning answers for us. How Timothy would persevere and what this text answers for us is the same answer for us. How Timothy would persevere is how you and I will persevere in the race to fight the good fight of faith. So last time we looked at fight the good fight of faith by treasuring the word. And this morning we want to look at the title, fight the good fight of faith by persevering in the ministry of the word. Let me read our text for this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. 
The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So in this text, Paul calls Timothy to persevere in the gospel ministry. And what we're going to see specifically is what we call gospel discipleship. And he's telling him to persevere even though he is going to suffer. It's going to mean he's going to suffer. And just like Patrick Downs, he persevered through that marathon because he had a greater cause behind it. Timothy and you and I are going to persevere because we believe in a greater cause and a greater strength and power that works behind us. And we're going to find that in this text. Now, three words help us explain our text, all beginning with E. Three words, empower, entrust, and endure. Empower, entrust, and endure. So the first word, empower. First, we've got to persevere by being empowered by grace for gospel discipleship. Verse 1, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. This is a beautiful verse for us. When he says be strong, it's really a passive So it should really be rendered, be strengthened. The idea here is that the strength to do this, the strength for the race, the strength for the fight of faith, saint, it's not going to come from you. It's going to come from above. Be strengthened by the grace. And I like this because there are a lot of different ways that God could have let that sentence end. Think about that for a second. How could have God allow that sentence work out? Be strengthened in the consistency of your own performance. Be strengthened in the knowledge of the law and the doctrinal truths of Scripture. Be strengthened in the fear of the Lord. Be strengthened in your duty to God's mission. Now, there is some truth to all of those statements. There's a sense in which all of those are true. You know, when we see the victories over our sin and our progress in righteousness, it can motivate us to continue to obey God. When we're reminded of God's law and his clear commands of Scripture, it motivates us to obey. When we're reminded that God is ultimate judge and is going to keep us accountable for what we do, that would motivate us to obey. When we're reminded that God has commanded us to the duty of our mission, that can motivate us to obey that mission. So there's a sense in which these are true, but that is not what God says will strengthen us. That is not what God says in this text. If those things alone are what we lean on for strength, we're eventually going to grow tired, we're going to grow discouraged, and we're ultimately going to be unfruitful. Focusing on those things alone will steadily lead us to the wrong motivation and is going to leave us powerless. And so God ends the sentence exactly right. Be strengthened in the grace 
that is in Christ Jesus. The only way that we're going to have power to obey God and fulfill our calling is when we're motivated and empowered by the grace in Christ. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be strengthened in the grace that's in Christ? Well, we understand what the term grace means. It's in the very name of your church, Grace Bible Church. You know what grace is. Grace is simply unmerited favor. It's undeserved kindness. It's when someone freely shows kindness when it's undeserved. And as my old pastor would say, even when it is ill-deserved. When artists use the acrostic of grace to explain its definitions, God's riches at Christ's expense. I think that's a good definition. All the blessings, all the promises, all the riches of Christ that come to us because we did something? No, because he gave himself. That is grace. God says that the primary way that you're going to be strengthened by him is when you focus on the infinite ways that he has shown you undeserved kindness in Jesus. You see, you are not just saved by grace, dear Christian. You live by that grace. Now, strengthened by grace means that you're constantly living in the reality of God's grace, the reality of that grace. And Paul gives an example of that in the first letter to Timothy. Why don't you turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 12, listen to what Paul writes. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Now remember when these letters are written, they're written near the end of his life. He's lived a long life of fruitful service. And let me ask you, according to these words, has he ever gotten over the fact that he was saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? It never came mundane to him. He never got over the fact that I was once a Pharisee that breathed threats and murders against his church. And then he took that one and let me see the glories of Christ, made me his child, and then he wasn't done. And then he said, I want you to be my servant. He never got over that. It's something he never got over. Dear Christian, has the Christian life become mundane to you? Have you gotten over your salvation? Like that was, that was great years ago, but the gospel's boring to me now. It's the same monotonous story over and over again. Oh, not so the case with the Apostle Paul, and it ought not to be for us. Do you remember where you sat before? 
the grace of Christ met you? Do you remember what road you were on? Do you remember the people that you had hurt? Do you remember where you would have ended up? Do you remember the grasp that Christ took when he revealed himself to you and pulled you out? Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? That, that grace is what strengthens us. That is what we remember. Paul never got over it. That is grace that empowers. So strengthened by grace means living in the reality of that grace. Remind yourself of this often. We sang this this morning. Preach that grace to yourself regularly, regularly. You need to remember what you've been given. You need to remember where you have come. You need to remember the long list. Think Ephesians 1. Think Ephesians 2. Think of that long list of what you have received simply because Jesus was willing to make you his own. That is to be strengthened by grace. Well, strengthened by grace means relying fully on something outside of yourself, fully relying on that grace in Christ and not on yourself. You know, Paul learned not to rely on himself, but to look to the grace of Christ for power. You remember that Paul had already told Timothy that God has given you a spirit of power. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7. So the power is there. He's given you a spirit of power. So he's not saying um, gain new power. Yet here we see that Timothy and you and I are to believe and receive and walk in the power that is already ours by virtue of our position in Christ. That's what he's saying. In other words, Timothy doesn't so much need to pray for power, but he needs to learn to rely totally, to depend on that power that is available to him in Christ. You don't need to go search and find the power. It's there. It's we must learn to depend on that power. Depend on that grace. And as you fully lean on and depend upon that grace, what you find beautifully is that there is more than enough amount for you. Much more than enough. You could jot down 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, and you remember the words of the Apostle Paul when he was taught this lesson. And Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You see, this is the lesson that Paul learned over and over. In that verse, God equates grace with his power, power that can be experienced only through human weakness. So when Paul wanted Timothy to be strengthened by the same divine power that he had experienced, he urges Timothy to be strengthened by grace. And what he's telling Timothy is, as you get strengthened by that grace, there's more than enough. There's going to be ample amount for you. It will never run out because right there it says, it is sufficient for you. It is sufficient for you. There is enough for you for everything that you're going to face. For every trial that you go through and every attempt 
to bear the gospel out. There is grace for you. I love these words of Spurgeon. He says this, Christ has grace without measure in himself, but he hath not retained it for himself. As the reservoir empties itself into the pipes, so hath Christ emptied out his grace for his people. Oh, his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. He seems only to have an order to dispense to us. He stands like the fountain, always flowing, but only running in order to supply the empty pitchers and the thirsty lips which draw nigh unto it. Like a tree, he bears sweet fruit, not to hang on bows, but to be gathered by those who need grace, whether it work be to pardon, to cleanse, to preserve, to strengthen, to enlighten, to quicken, or to restore, is ever to be had from him freely and without price, nor is there one form of of the work of grace which he has not bestowed upon his people. As the blood of the body, though flowing through the heart, belongs equally to every member, so the influences of grace are the inheritance of every saint united to the Lamb. And herein, there is a sweet communion between Christ and his church inasmuch as they both receive the same grace. Oh, how beautiful that grace. Oh, what a fountain full of amount that is available to us. And guess what? It never diminishes. Whenever you come to that fount, it is, you still find it full. You drink full and it's still full when you come to it. Oh, be strengthened by this grace. It's like a light bulb. A light bulb does not shine, does not illumine, does not do what it's supposed to unless it is hooked into the power grid. As soon as you flip that switch, it's connected, isn't it? It's connected to the power and it illumines and it does exactly what it's supposed to do. And that's what Paul is saying to us. Stay linked to the source of power. Stay linked to that source of power. Stay acquainted with the grace in Christ Jesus. Live in its reality. Depend upon it and find it full every time. That's what he's saying. How do you you keep being strengthened in grace? Well, think about marriage. You know, there's a sense in which Christ never lets us go. And so we know that there's an idea that Christ will always have union with us. Christ will always be connected to us. We will always be abiding in him because he holds on to us. But does that mean we do nothing? No, that doesn't mean we do nothing. In a marriage, what do we do? We nurture that union, don't we? We work at that relationship. We spend time with one another We don't allow the tough times to dampen that love. We dwell on the good of it. Well, Christian, when when Paul commands Timothy to be strengthened by the grace, he doesn't mean just do nothing. It means nurture that relationship with Jesus. Nurture that, 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 that union. Nurture that abiding in him through his word. Spend time with him. Spend good time with him. Commune with him. Speak with him. Read his word. Let it dwell within you. Flow within you. Be acquainted with him in his grace. That's what he means. That's how you are strengthened by the grace which in Christ Jesus. And what a comfort this truth is. 
what a comfort. Aren't you glad that the chosen instrument to, to provide you power is not fear? For certainly, God could drive you by fear. He could drive you by his anger. Oh, but he says, no, I motivate you by my grace. Aren't you glad? God isn't this celestial tiger mom. You know what tiger moms are? <laughs> tiger mom is one that, that motivates by pressure and fear and says, you better do it this way, child, or else you're going to get it. That's a tiger mom. Praise God, God is not like that. He draws us by his love. He draws us by his grace. He says, remember what mercy I had on you. Remember how I loved you. Remember how I showered every good thing, every blessing, every promise. Let that motivate you. Let that strengthen you. So I guess the first thing I would ask you is, have you received this grace? I don't want to assume just even in a church this size that everyone here has received this grace. Have you received the grace, the love of Christ that has come? You know what God did? He sent his son, fully God, yet fully man, lived a perfect life and surrendered his life for sinners like Paul, for someone who breathed threats against his very church, for enemies. And even you might be here right now as an enemy of God. He is ready to shed his love abroad on you. Have you answered to his grace? Has you, have you received it? Have you experienced it? Come to him. Come to know the Savior that has given his life. Now, if you're a believer here, never forget that it's the grace of Christ that's going to strengthen you. Not your ingenuity, not your ability, not any external thing, not any external substance will be able to strengthen your inner man except the grace of Christ. Be convinced of that. So what do you need to do? Keep that grace of Christ before you at all times. Let the list of kind promises of his grace be engraved on your memory. Rehearse them often. Preach the gospel to yourself often. The love and grace of Jesus will be your strength when you're tired of life. And we're tired of the rigors of gospel discipleship. So be empowered by the grace Persevere by being empowered by the grace. Now secondly, persevere by entrusting the gospel to faithful reproducers. Entrusting the gospel to faithful reproducers. Verse 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here, Paul gives this great charge to Timothy, and it's really a template of how God intends the gospel to go out to the rest of the world, to all generations. In fact, I would say, though all scripture is inspired and important, this is probably one of the most important verses of the Bible, because it clearly describes how God wants us to fulfill our mission. This is how we fulfill our mission, and it begins with this command to entrust and we looked at that word last week, what it means to entrust. It means to commit someone, commit something to the care of someone. Paul wants Timothy to commit to the care of something important. 
the word carries with it a seriousness, a solemnity to the task. There's a responsibility passed on here. It's like when you uh, choose a babysitter for your kids. You don't do that haphazardly because you realize what you're doing. You're entrusting the care of your child into the hands of a possible stranger. So you need to know them. You need to get to know them. You know, need to know their qualifications. You don't just let anyone care for your kids. There's a responsibility with that idea of entrusting. So what's entrusted here? What are the things to be entrusted? He says, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. I like that. Paul's saying, it's nothing secret. What I'm entrusting to you is actually something proclaimed publicly. You know, the, the, the truths of Christianity are not things that are given over by secret handshake in darkened rooms. These are things right here in the public that everybody hears. That's what you need to pass on. And what he means by that is the gospel. Pass on the truth of the gospel. The gospel of Christ. Here it is, Timothy, the precious gospel into your hands. Now, what is, what is Timothy to do with it? He's entrusted to whom? Faithful men. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There are two qualities here highlighted to who the gospel gets passed to. First, faithful, trustworthy, dependable men. Faithful people. Why faithful? Because the importance of the mission you have to give it to someone dependable, someone who's trustworthy to make sure that the mission continues, to make sure it's going to happen. You don't want to give it to someone and they just drop the ball and it stops. So, Timothy, be very careful who you give it to. Give it to those ones that will take care of it, that are going to take it upon themselves to make sure it goes out and reproduces. And that's our second quality, to those who will reproduce themselves those who will be able to teach others also. The mission depends on individuals who are going to successfully reproduce themselves. It's not a matter of talent or gifts. They can have all those, but if they don't reproduce themselves, all that stops. So they need to give it to someone that has an eye toward making it sure it goes to generation to generation. Timothy, make sure they're faithful and make sure they're reproducers. Now, though this context is speaking of one pastor speaking to another pastor, it still has application to us, doesn't it? This text has greater application to all believers because it outlines the vision for gospel discipleship. Biblical gospel discipleship means taking an unbeliever and bringing them to a point of maturity where they're going to reproduce themselves in others. And the Bible tells us that this is a task not just for pastors and shepherds. It involves every single believer. It involves the whole body. You can jot these two verses down. I think they're familiar to you. Matthew 28, 19 to 20, and then Colossians 1, 28. Matthew 28 says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Even in that passage alone, we see how this belongs to all of us. Even if this is just the 12 he's speaking to, but they most likely think there were probably 500 at that moment, even if we think it was them, what does he tell them to do? Teach them, make disciples, make disciples, and teach them to observe all. All including this passage. All including making disciples. So he's talking about every single believer. Anyone that will become a follower of Jesus needs to be observing all, even this command. So this is the whole church. Every single one of us must have a a part in this. All of us, this is our responsibility. Colossians 1.28 says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. What is the product envisioned in that verse? That the Christian will be mature. There'll be a wonderful maturity to to the look of Christ. That there'll be a Christ-likeness about them. That is gospel discipleship. And isn't it a wonder, God says to this church, all of you are involved with this. All of you are involved in bringing unbelievers to Christ and then carrying them into maturity so that they might themselves be mature and make other disciples. What a wondrous, awesome thing. Now, can you think of people in your life that God has used to strengthen you, to mature you? And I'm guessing it's not just Tony, and I'm guessing it's not just the elders that did that, right? It was each one of you we're involved with that. Oh, what, what, what would it be if we didn't have each other for this? What it would be if there were not other Christians to help us to mature into Christ-likeness? Oh, what a precious responsibility this is. So my question to you is this. What do you see as your part in making disciples who make disciples? What's your part? God has given you the gifts and spiritual experience so that you can pass it on to another. God has put upon you in this place at this time so that you can make disciples who will make other disciples. Are you excited about that? Are you involved with that? Oh, it's a beautiful responsibility that we're given. Maybe some tips. If this is new to you and you're like i can't i i didn't realize that i need to be doing this here's just a couple of tips okay first if you're not used to this get into discipleship with someone get into a a a learner relationship a follower relationship that's someone that's more mature than you so you could see how it's done follow them see how they live life see how they do ministry get discipled by them Work at being a faithful Christian. Grow at becoming a trustworthy and dependable, faithful Christian. You know, as you are faithful in little, then you'll be faithful in much. So start at those little things. Exercise your gift in the body and grow at it. If you don't know your gift, then just start serving. God's going to direct you. You're going to find it. Get involved with other believers. And specifically, make yourself available to those in need of your giftedness. 
Make yourself available. Parents, maybe you don't, maybe you're not discipled before. Start with your kids. Start with your children. There you go. God has handed you ones to disciple. This is a wonderful command and a responsibility. This has been entrusted to us. So one, be empowered by grace. And second, entrust the gospel to faithful reproducers. Now third, persevere by enduring the hardship of gospel discipleship. This is going to be hard. (laughs) As daunting as this task may sound, it's going to involve suffering. You know, there's these crazy uh, marathons or endurance races that people put on. There's one called the Marathon de Saab. It's held in Morocco every year. It bills itself as the toughest foot race on earth. The participants cover 156 miles over the course of six days. And during that time, they need to traverse the Sahara Desert, crossing dunes, mountains, sand, and storms. And unlike other races, the Marathon de Saab is a stage race, meaning competitors stop each day and rest. The twist, however, is that they must also carry all of their own supplies, save a small ration of water given out each day, including food, clothing, sleeping bag, and other items. Why would a person ever (laughs) want to cross the Sahara Desert 156 miles? There's another one, the Barkley Marathon. It has no website. There's no way to enter it actively. It's a secret. (laughs) The race begins an hour after a conch shell is blown by founder Gary Lazarus Lake Contrell, which can happen anytime between midnight and noon on race day. The course is said to snake 100 miles through brutal terrain in the mountains in Frozen Head State Park in Tennessee, though some may say it's closer to 130 miles long. Racers have 60 hours to finish. The course is unknown to racers until the day before the race and is mostly off any sort of trail. Many participants get lost for hours. Now, up to 40 people are allowed to compete every year, again, by secret, though more than 200 might apply. The pool includes winners for some of the toughest ultra races in the world. Only 15 people have ever finished the race within the time limit. When you think about these races, what could possibly possess a person to do something like this, right? Why in the world would a person subject themselves to a grueling endurance race? Well, they would tell you. Because they sought its reward. Whether it's the reward at the end or the internal acknowledgement of overcoming it, it's that effort is worth the prize for them. Well, in a much greater way, God has set a race before each one of us, and it's a spiritual endurance race for, the go- for gospel discipleship. And it's far more worth the effort than any foot race. Its prize is an eternal reward that will never fade and never perish. And it all goes to worship and glory to our Savior Christ. So we need to be willing to endure this race as we set our sight on the prize. And in this text, there are three pictures that Paul gives. Three pictures of how we're to endure here. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. 
Look at verse three. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Here he mentions the soldier. And the thing about the soldier is that he is mission focused. There is a mission focused loyalty in the soldier. He says, suffer hardship, suffer evil together with me. Be willing to be persecuted with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. That's simply as a a, a foot soldier, an infantryman, one who's in rank with every other. Join me in the army. Verse 4, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. What he's saying there is don't forget that you're a soldier in, the, in active duty. Don't go AWOL. Don't go absent without leave. And don't allow non-warfare issues to take the lion's share of your life. And isn't that so applicable to us today? Aren't there so many things in the world that try to capture our time? Aren't there so many things that try to distract us from the kingdom? And some of those things, they're not necessarily evil or sinful, but just the fact that they preoccupy us, make us disloyal to what we ought to be doing as soldiers. We have a military assignment. We need to be about our kingdom assignment of making disciples who make disciples. That's what he's saying there. When you think about World War II, what made soldiers enlist? You know, when they saw the atrocities of what the Germans were doing, they said, I'm going to take up the cause. When they saw the atrocities that happened at Pearl Harbor, soldiers said, I'm going to sign up. Why? Because they believe the cause. Dear Christian, much more than that, do you believe the cause of Christ? Is he worthy of all glory? Is he worthy of your life's work, your life's labor? your hardship, even your suffering to make disciples that make disciples. That's what he's saying. Christians believe in the cause of Christ. Christians desire to please the Savior who saved them at such a costly price. That's what the verse means by so that he may please the one who enlisted him. Believer, are you longing to please the one who enlisted you? So have that enduring mission focus of a soldier, but have this enduring discipline of an athlete. Look at verse five. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. There's this book uh, called Outliers, the story of success written by Malcolm Gladwell. And in it, he he describes what it means to be a, a master at something to master a craft. He says, in order to become a master at your craft, he determined through his research, you have to dedicate at least 10,000 hours. This is the minimum threshold focused experience that will set you apart from amateurs and the rest of the world. And we see this phenomenon clearly in the elite athlete community. Michael Phelps started swimming competitively at age seven and already held a national record for his age group in the 100 meter butterfly by age 10. According to his coach, Bob Bauman, Phelps didn't miss a morning practice from the age of 11 through 16 years old. He would practice on Sundays, birthdays, and Christmas mornings to keep his competitive edge. 
At an average of four hours per day in the pool, this meant Phelps had already shattered the 10,000 hour rule by the time he competed in his first Olympics at Sydney in 2000 as the youngest male to make a U.S. Olympic swim team in 68 years. Wow. Think of the rigor it takes. Some of you uh, are athletes and you understand this. When you're an athlete, you, you shed the, the civilian world, don't you? You say, I'm going to live by this, this rigor, this discipline, so that I can become successful at this. And we see this in Michael Phelps. Any professional athlete that desires to be excellent in their sport understand it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to cost them dearly through rigorous discipline to achieve their goal. Well, in a greater way, God's people are called to discipline. God's people are called to discipline. And Paul compared himself to an athlete here. You can, uh, why don't we turn quickly to 1 Corinthians 9. I want to show this to you. This is another place where Paul picks up this athlete picture. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. He writes, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And here Paul's talking about gospel ministry. He's talking about gospel discipleship. And he's saying, what do I do? I beat my body and make it my slave so that I can do this. The sacrifice it takes to do this mission, I'm willing. And when he says, I buffet my body, I discipline my body, you know what that literally means? To knock out. (laughs) I knock out. Paul is saying, there is an enemy to this gospel discipleship. There's an enemy to the work that I'm supposed to be doing, and I need to knock that guy out. Who's the enemy? Himself. I knock myself out for this. My flesh, my sinful self, my, my, my comforts, my slavery to, to comfort, my slavery to my pleasures, my slavery to things and the world. It's my enemy. It's keeping me from doing what I'm supposed to be doing. So I knock myself out and make it my slave so I can do the mission for Christ's glory. And that's what he's saying here. Be this athlete. Be this athlete, this enduring discipline. It's going to take rigor, Christian, to do this. It's going to take effort and labor. It's worth it because the imperishable wreath Christ's glory, the soul saved. Oh, it'll be so worth it. So endure. Lastly, have the enduring consistency of the hardworking farmer. Of the hardworking farmer. Verse 6, the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So Paul brings up a farmer, and the characteristic he brings up is that they're hardworking. Now, some of you might work in agriculture and you understand what that means. 
I have a neighbor, he had to tell me about this. He, he used to work on a farm, a, a dairy farm. And when I would talk to this neighbor, he would say, you know, Mike, this was unceasing work day after day after day. There were no breaks from sunrise to sunset. And the only way you could get a break is if you had good neighbors that would take up the labor because the labor would never stop. It would be ongoing. And that's the picture that Paul gives to us. This is going to be ongoing effort. This is going to be hard. You know why it's hard? Because it's messy to be in others' lives. Because it's heartbreaking. Because people disappoint each other. Because you get mad at each other. And you get arguments. And you have to reconcile. And it's hard to be in people's lives and, and lead them to maturity in Christ because sometimes they don't want it. Sometimes they fight you on it. And it ends in heartbreak sometimes. And it ends in betrayal. And sometimes it ends in being stabbed in the back. And so Paul says, be like the farmer. It takes consistent effort. The labor will continue day in, day out. Will you give yourself to it? Will you do it every day? Will you give, it, give yourself to its labors every single day? Because Christ is worth it. Because his mission is worth it. You know, I pray as challenging as this is that the Lord is giving you an excitement to do this. And remember how this all started, right? We're not going to do this on our own power. Be empowered by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Commune with him. Find your strength in him. He is an unceasing fountain of strength and power for you to achieve this, to do this. And then as you're empowered by him, what do you do? Entrust the gospel to faithful reproducers. Go find them. Be involved in people's life. Reproduce yourself in others. Make sure the gospel goes on and on and on. Reproduce it in others. And then endure in the hardship. It's going to be hard work. You got to have the, the laser focus of a loyal soldier. You got to have the discipline of an athlete. And you got to have the endurance of a hardworking farmer. You're going to need that. Uh, one of my favorite books is Don't Waste Your Life. And uh, Piper gives a great example of how not to persevere in the fight a great example of how not to persevere and and i'm afraid for myself that i might fall into the same thing and so listen to what he says He's, he talks about an american tragedy how not to finish you finish your life I, I will tell you of what a tragedy is i will show you how to waste your life consider a story from february 1998 edition of reader's digest which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your own, your own and your only precious God-given life and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, 
playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells. (laughs) That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream over against that. I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Oh, dear believer, we have a great mission to be part of. He has given us everything we need in the grace that is in Christ to empower us. And he says, go reproduce yourself so that they might reproduce themselves. And it's going to take hard work. Let's not waste our lives. What a privilege it is to carry this gospel. And one day there is an imperishable wreath waiting for us. There is a good and faithful servant comment coming to us but it takes effort now it takes our lives now it takes being willing to suffer now it takes being sold out for god's mission now to be part of saving the lost bringing them to maturity and making sure that legacy of the gospel goes on from generation to generation how are you going to finish paul said i have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the course. Christian, how are you going to finish? Christ is worth it, isn't it? He's worth it. Let's serve the King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Would you put upon us, Lord, your church and every local church that this is our calling? What a beautiful calling! Paul was willing to die for it, to suffer for it, because he knew the worthiness of Christ.